Good morning. Uh, my name is Matt, and I get to teach God's Word today. And uh, if you have your own Bible, I encourage you to kind of actually put your finger in two different places in the Bible. I don't do this very often. Uh, but the second to last book in the Old Testament, Zechariah, chapter 14. And then the fifth book in the New Testament, the book of Acts, chapter 1. Uh, one of the quotes that struck me uh, throughout COVID uh, was a pa- uh, Pastor Mark Dever at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., uh, remarked a number of months ago. He said, uh, no one joins eHarmony for the relationship to culminate in a Zoom call. Right? The, the, we, when we go after that special someone, we want to touch them. We want to see them. We want to listen to them. I, I was thinking also back in the, the late 80s and early 90s, there was a somewhat famous popular music uh, artists known as Millie Vanilli, and they had this song, blame it on the rain, yeah, yeah, you got to blame it on something. But lo and behold, people found out they were spending, you know, their tens, twenties of dollars to go to concerts to find out they were lip-syncing. They weren't actually singing, they weren't actually hearing live voices. And people wanted their money back. That wasn't what I wanted. I wanted the experience of real people singing a real song. Today and next week, we're going to look at the return of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ returns, he's going to, be, he's going to return visibly and physically. He's going to be present with his people. Not going to be a, a lip sync from heaven. It's not going to be... You know, some sort of Zoom call from heaven. Jesus will return physically and gloriously. Last week we finished a sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, and we, it culminates in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three days prior to Jesus' resurrection, he was killed. Conspirators worked to see that Jesus would die, and they crucified him. Political powers, religious powers, they work together for Jesus' death. Behind the scenes of these people, evil, the devil himself was, was, was working the greatest conspiracy of evil to make an innocent man, the Son of God, die. But Jesus rises from the dead. And as I mentioned last week, Jesus' resurrection puts all conspirators, conspirators of evil on notice. You have not one, and you will not win. And those who remain in rebellion against God, those who stay in their sins, will one day will experience the full judgment when Jesus comes in the flesh. So for these next two weeks, I want to do, go back to a tradition I've done uh, off and on for the 10 years here and spend uh, a couple of weeks looking at one of the articles uh, that make up our statement of faith. We are a confessional church, which means we confess things together and it's what we confess that unite us. And Article 9 of the Statement of Faith is about Christ's return. And so as I begin this morning, I'm going to invite those particularly who are members of Cornerstone Church to re-express, reconfirm our common confession in Article 9. So Article 9 will be above me here on the wall, projected on the wall. And I'm just going to ask you, uh, particularly those who are members and those who are like-minded, feel free to express our common faith in uh, Christ's return. So let's say this together. We believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy, and as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. Let me pray. Father, I pray that this confession would not just arise from our minds, but it would go down into our hearts and then play out in our lives. And so use your word to do just that. Uh, For your sake and for your people, we pray. Amen. Uh, Some of you are familiar with the Lord of the Rings trilogy in the second movie. I'm talking about the movie uh, called The Two Towers. Uh, One of the scenes that plays out is you have these heroes, the heroes of Rohan, and they're backed up by some of those from the Fellowship of the Ring, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli. And what goes on, one of the major scenes in the book, as well as the movie, is there's this battle for Helm's Deep. And there in the helm, uh, an ugly and, the ugly and ferocious enemies of Saruman are planning to attack and see the end of the people of Rohan. Now, before they have to go to Helm's Deep, there's a, there's a council. And there at the council, the great wizard Gandalf approves of the plan, but then lets them know, I'm leaving. I'm leaving right? you know, when you have a great and powerful wizard, you usually want him to stick around. But he says he has an errand. But before he leaves, he says this, Look to my coming at first light on the fifth day at dawn. Look to the east. Now, lo and behold, the Battle of Helm's Deep, is an, it looks to be a defeat. The heroes have been challenged, they're defeated, the evil attackers have swarmed. And so inside of the helm, these heroes, they decide, all right, one last fight. They mount their steeds and they begin their one last battle for the defense of Rohan and Helm's Deep. And there on that day, on the fifth day at dawn, Gandalf the White returns. And with him, other warriors of light and goodness. The battle of Helm's Deep is won. Now at a small level, that's, that's just a small picture of what the future return of Jesus Christ will be like. Jesus, the white, the glorious one, coming to save and redeem those who have fought against evil and have lived for good. There will be a mighty warrior king coming to save his people. Remember, Jesus' resurrection puts evil on notice, but Jesus' second coming is when time is up. Justice for the enemies salvation for the people. And so for this week, we're really focusing on the first sentence of Article 9, which says, we believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the two biblical texts that are going to guide us are one Old Testament text, Zechariah 14, one New Testament text, Acts chapter 1. Zechariah 14 is a prophetic word given about 500 years before the arrival of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 1 is also a prophetic word, this time given by an angel about the return of Jesus. Uh, Because these are longer texts, they'll be up above me, uh, projected, but I encourage you to be looking at them in your own Bible. I'm going to begin by reading Zechariah chapter 14, and I'm going to read 1 through 11. This is a prophetic vision given by Zechariah the prophet, and he says, A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem. 
when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night, and when evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea, and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord in his name, the only name. The whole land from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Arabah. But Jerusalem will be raised up high from the Benjamin Gate to the site of the first gate to the corner gate and from the Tower of Hananel to the royal wine presses and will remain in its place. It will be inhabited. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. Flipping to the New Testament, Acts chapter 1. This is the scene right after Jesus. He's resurrected. He was on the earth for 40 days instructing and and training his apostles. And then on the fourth day, he he ascends into heaven. It says in verse 9, After he, Jesus, said this, his final words of commendation. It says, Jesus was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sights. And they were looking intently up into the sky. By the way, that is a funny picture. I mean, there's just this, I just love that picture. They were looking intently up in the sky as he was going, and, when, and then, and when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. So they're doing this, and then two angelic beings right there. Oh, wake up call. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So these verses give us just a short summary of the nature of Jesus' second coming. You could, in, in, if you kind of tie these verses together, I would put it something like this. When enemies, when the enemies are at the door of daughter Jerusalem, her Lord and Savior will appear in bodily form to save and to judge. Now, we don't have everything, a lot of time to develop everything the Bible has to say about Jerusalem. That would be a worthy study on your own, to look at God's particular words about this city. Uh, the city of Jerusalem is called the Holy City. It's called his daughter. It's called his bride. Uh, for In God's planning, in God's uh, uh, or, ordination of events, he has chosen of Jerusalem to be the center of world 
history. God has had and continues to have a plan for the Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem. And if there's any doubt about that, just look at world history for 3,000 years. Interestingly, about 300 years ago, there was a pretty famous Prussian king by the name of Frederick I. And one day he was asking his physician, give me some proof for the existence of God. To which his doctor replied, your majesty, the continued existence of the Jews. And here was his point. How could such a persecuted people still be central on the world stage? if it wasn't the existence of God. And I think about this. He made this observation 200 years before the Holocaust, 275 years before the, the, the reunification of Jerusalem in 1967. An early 20th century uh, Jew was named Nikolai Berdaev. Interesting, he was a practicing Russian Marxist who eventually became an an Orthodox Christian. And he would write this. He said, How probable is it that a tiny people, the children of Israel, known today as Jews, numbering less than a fifth of a percent of the population of the world, would outlive every empire that sought its destruction? Or that a small persecuted sect known as the Christians would one day become the largest movement of any kind in the world. So what has been playing out in human history aligns with Scripture. And we read now in Zechariah chapter 14 and many other places in the Bible, there is another watershed moment planned for the city of Jerusalem. And Zechariah, he describes it as an all-out assault on God's holy city, his daughter. Verse 2, it says, this is, So Zechariah is speaking prophetic words from God. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured. The houses ransacked and the women raped. And half of the city is in exile and the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. So Zechariah sees this pointed attack on this city. Now, those of you who have read through the book of Revelation, which is the prophetic, primary prophetic book in the New Testament, you'll know that as you read through the book of Revelation, it's a little bit less specific about a place. In fact, what Revelation describes is a broad description of evil powers working to attack God's people, not just in Jerusalem, but throughout the world. And the evil enemy all throughout the book of Revelation is described as Babylon, and that Babylon goes after God's holy people spread across the whole earth. Revelation doesn't go into detail on how and why and when things will get centered in Jerusalem, but it does have a similar coming in Revelation 19 of the Lord Jesus coming in one place, Jerusalem. And it's important to remember that Jerusalem is a place and a symbol all throughout the Bible. Jerusalem symbolizes the place where God chooses to bless and to love. A recurring exp- that recurring expression all throughout the Bible, daughter Jerusalem or daughter Zion, the place and the people of God are his treasured child. And yes, at different times, God himself will choose to bring discipline to his child, to his daughter, to the city, 
But on numerous occasions, he tells those who have oppressed or abused his city, I will come and redeem my child. She is precious to me. Now, incidentally, in the New Testament, the, after Jesus' death and his resurrection, he begins to say, all those who profess Jesus Christ, all those who walk with him, they're his treasured possession. They are his sons. They are his daughters. And God cares for his children. He cares for his church. We are his, we are his beloved. We are his daughter. Similarly, yes, persecutions will come. Uh, atrocities will happen. But that's not the end of the story. Some might think dad is out of town, too far away to come to help. But the Bible says our God is coming. In fact, God is orchestrating the events. Did you kick that back in 14.2? He says, I'm going to gather the nations around Jerusalem. The Lord is ordaining these events. And the final event will make it look like Jerusalem is on her last legs. But don't worry, the Lord is coming. Her Savior is at hand. Interesting enough, last week or a week and a half ago during that electoral college day, uh, many would say it was a pretty dark day, kind of, kind of fear-inspiring. And I was talking to someone that day, who not just that day, but months leading up, has just felt a lot of pressure on country and politics, the division. And woke up that morning, and you know, what did she pray that day? More than ever, come, Lord Jesus. Right. And what what I think it, what was coming out of the heart is we begin to see that that our hope is not in this world, right? It's not in my strength. It's not in the strength of uh, some elected political official. It's not in some, some military. It's not in some unique strat strategium we haven't come up with. It's in the personal, visible, bodily return of Jesus Christ. And then there's always interesting people like, Matt, is this the end of time? Could this be the end? And the answer is, it's certainly possible. In fact, if you read history, Every generation since Jesus left, there's been enough things going on in the world to say, is this it? Is this the time? Is the Lord near? Yes. And who knows for sure? But know this. The Lord knows. I'd also add that the center of action is not going to be in Washington, D.C., it's Jerusalem, right? His holy city. And daughter Jerusalem will have enemies at her door. But she is not down and out. It says, her Lord and Savior is coming. Pick up again in verse 3. When all seems to be lost, it says, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. Verse 4. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. He's coming. Now, when the original readers, the original Old Testament readers, the, the original audience that Zechariah was uh, prophesying to, I'm, I'm assuming there was both a smile and a scratch of the heads. I mean, the smile, it's a hopeful smile. Right? This is, in history, when this first was preached, uh, was after they had been in Babylonian captivity and the city had been destroyed, the walls broken, the temple destroyed. 
and eventually Persia had allowed them to return. And so Israel is an occupied country, this time under Persia, but they are back in Jerusalem. But it's a precarious time for those who have returned to Jerusalem because the walls have not been rebuilt. Those of you who know a little bit about ancient warfare will know that a city without walls is a sitting duck. They are open to any sort of enemy attack. And so there was a lot of fear when Zechariah was preaching and prophesying. Any day, any somewhat strong nearby foreign nation could have Jerusalem for the taking. And yet Zechariah says, the Lord will come and the Lord will protect and the Lord will save. And so there there would have been a hopeful smile. Yes, we're okay. Press on, hold out. And yet, I do believe there would be a scratch of the head. God has feet? The Lord has feet? Like, at that time in salvation history, what they knew of God was God was a a single-person entity, a being, in spirit form. And he's going to, like, come down on a physical location. The Mount of Olives is uh, east of the city of Jerusalem, uh, it's elevated about 330 feet above the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's a pretty high city on a hill. It's called, at the highest point, it's called the Temple Mount. And even higher than that, 330 feet is the Mount of Olives. So you could see this Mount of Olives. And the picture is God himself is coming down in some sort of bodily form with feet. And everybody's going to see this. And it's, he's going to come down onto the Mount of Olives. And so they've got to be scratching their head. God with feet? Visibly, bodily. But we know, in light of the arrival of Jesus Christ, there is one God who has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in salvation history, God chose to reveal himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Some of the scriptures that you're familiar with that begin to develop the theology that, it, that, that makes us a Trinitarian people one of which is John 1, 1, right? Where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there is this eternal being, the Word, Greek word logos, right? Who is with God and also God. And it'll go down, and then John will go on in verse 14, say that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. As it turns out, there has always been a second and third member of the Trinity. The the third member is called the Holy Spirit. They have equal power. They have authority. uh, And in Christ, God came. In Christ, God came. That's what we celebrated at Christmas. In Christ, God came. Born in Bethlehem. Born in a manger. But born to die. Jesus himself said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Christ dies on Good Friday on the cross for our sins. And it, it, it was validated three days later on Resurrection Sunday that that purchase, that forgiveness was validated, vindicated by God the Father in the raising of the Son. Jesus accomplished all that he needed to do in his first coming, and he is now ascended and sitting at the right hand of God the Father before he comes for his final work, to save and to judge. And 
the angel back there in Acts chapter 1 uh, confirmed. How is he going to return? Verse 11, Acts 1. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So Jesus ascended bodily and he, he ascended visibly and he's going to return bodily and visibly. He went up in the clouds. We read in scripture, he will return in the clouds. This is why we profess the personal bodily and glorious return of Jesus Christ. And the physical return, we, we kind of hinted at the introduction, it matters. It matters because we all know what it means to have a person present in the flesh. It's one thing for a kid to see his dad on FaceTime while the dad's serving overseas in Afghanistan. But it's so different for that child to be able to sit on dad's lap. I think it was a summer and a half ago, uh, I dropped off one of my sons at the Marion Library. They were having a program on, on space and NASA. Dropped him off. Went home, 45 minutes later, I came back, it was a little early, and I came in and sat down and watching the screen, and this, uh, this NASA scientist was explaining his time on the International Space Station, and I thought that was a pretty sweet video. And then he paused, and he said, are there any other questions? And I realized the guy was having a conversation with 12 kids from Marion, Iowa. I'm like, well, this is cool. You know, there has only been 242 people to ever be on the International Space Station. And he's one of them. That's about as elite a group as you can think of on this planet. And he's having a conversation with my kids. Now, it would have been better though, right? He could have been bodily present. Now, Jesus is more elite, <laughs> than one of the people who's been on the International Space Station. He's the one and only God, full of grace and truth. And it says he's coming bodily and physically for his people. Not as a hologram. This isn't some sort of FaceTime reconnection with Jesus. He's coming to be with his people. And it says forever. And think about a, a, the, the, you know, the soldier who serves one tour of duty, comes back, and then he has to look his kid in the eye and say, I'm leaving again, and I might not come back. That's not what's happening at the end of history. Jesus is coming to be with his people, and he's staying with his people. But what will he be doing when he returns? Zechariah says he's coming both to save and to judge. Verse 8, Zechariah 14, it says, On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea, in summer and in winter. Verse 9 says, The Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day, there will be one Lord in his name, the only name. So, I mean, uh, try, <laughs> trying to understand what's going to happen in the future uh, is always hard. Right? And so when you read both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're giving prophecies, but they're also always giving, you know, they're giving metaphors and they're giving descriptions that are kind of beyond understanding. For example, uh, 
living water, fresh living water, it will flow into the Dead Sea. And it's kind of the idea that somehow that water flowing out of Jerusalem goes into the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea becomes good drinking water. Like you thought turning a little bit of water into wine was a challenging miracle for Jesus. Oh, no. The Dead Sea will be made, you know, like reverse osmosis good. Right? And it's this image of when Jesus returns, he is, he is restoring and redeeming the planet. And more importantly, he's coming to redeem and restore his people. And the New Testament says that when we see him, we will be like him. Right? There is this renewal of humanity. We are given new physical, immortal, uh, incorruptible bodies. That is what is happening at Jesus' return. And it says that his return at Jerusalem doesn't just impact Jerusalem. It begins to ex- expand and influence the entire earth. Every eye will see Jesus' return. We read elsewhere in the Bible. Every knee will bow. There's going to be no disputed elections. There'll be no question of Jesus' authority. His reign will be a good reign for all who bow the knee. Uh, I read yesterday that when there's a, a, a nuclear mushroom cloud, right, you, can, you can see the impact of that powerful weapon for about 20 miles. It says that the powerful, triumphant, glorious return of Jesus Christ will be seen across every square inch of the earth. Right? That's what's coming. Uh, there is a warning, though. For all of the good for his people and the planet, there will also be judgment for his enemies. That gets spelled out a little more in verse 12 in Zechariah. Let me read some of these descriptions through verse 15. This is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. That's an image to think about. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. Their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, people will be, be stricken by the Lord with great panic. They will seize each other by the hand and attack one another. Judah, too, will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected, great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. A similar plague will strike the horses and mules, the camels and donkeys, and all the animals in those camps. In this judgment, all those who have opposed God and his people will be held to account. This is the time when time is up. And it's powerful and it's all-encompassing of all those who have turned against God. If you want to just jump ahead in your Bibles, last chapter, Revelation chapter 19, uh, starting in verse 11, we, we, we see again uh, another uh, description of when the Lord Jesus returns. What will it look like? What, what's its nature? Verse 11, this is John, the Apostle John, in his vision given from the Lord, he says in verse 11, Revelation 19, I saw... I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. You wonder where J.R.R. Tolkien got his fictional account of Gandalf the White coming on his steed. It says, with justice he judges and wages war. 
His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, and coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. A number of years ago, there was a pastor who tried to preach this. I'm not sure how accurate he was, but he, he, you got to picture that this rider is, he's coming fierce, he's coming strong. I don't know if they're actual tattoos on his body, but it says on his body. I mean, this is, the image of Jesus' return is mighty and powerful. No one can withstand this mighty God arriving. And I, I it, you know, when I, I actually grew up in a uh, kind of a mainline church, and there was one of the Sunday school rooms with that picture of Jesus with the lamb over his shoulder, and he looks really kind with blue eyes, unlikely, by the way. Um, and he looks all meek and mild. I never saw anybody put this picture up in Sunday school. Maybe because they thought little nine-year-olds wouldn't be able to sleep at night. But it pictures that at this coming, Jesus' action against enemies makes it so he's covered in blood. So the image of Jesus coming to bring judgment on those who have rebelled against him, it is showing that it will be complete, it will be successful. He is coming to judge. It's confirmed, it's confirmed in his death and resurrection. Right? He's defeated death. He's ascended heaven. He's waiting to come now and finish the final pieces of his work on this earth. He will come to save, but he will also come to judge. Then the unrepentant sexual abusers will be punished. The unrepentant adulterer will suffer consequences. The unrepentant liar will be sent to hell. The unrepentant sorcerer will be held to account. The unrepentant gossip will be stopped. This is the nature of Jesus' second coming. Daughter Jerusalem will have enemies at the door, but her Lord and Savior will come to save and to judge. We believe in the personal, bodily, glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So to close, let me ask a question. Why does this matter? Or in the words of every 15-year-old, so what? So what? Again, evil has been put on notice at Jesus' return. And Jesus' second coming says there is a a countdown. There's only an amount of time for enemies to yield. And so let me first give a word to uh, the, those who do profess Christ here, those who have chosen to bow, their name, bow the knee to Jesus. Let me just tell you, you can have great peace. Evil is on a leash. And evil will not win in the end. Evil doesn't have the final word on your life. It doesn't have the final word on history. Take heart, brother Christian, sister Christian. Jesus Christ has overcome the world. I would love for you to take five minutes each day this week 
and preach to your own heart. Say, Jesus, you're my peace. Jesus, you're my peace. Jesus is our peace to be reconciled to God so that we don't experience his wrath. Jesus is our peace to deal with the horizontal enemies that may be afoot in the world. You can pray when you get up this morning or tomorrow morning, Jesus, you're my peace. And those of you who don't know Jesus Christ today, by putting your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you would be able to say the same thing. Jesus, you're my peace. It's the unrepentant sexual abusers that will be punished. It is the unrepentant liars, the unrepentant gossips, the unrepentant proud. But all the repentant sinners get Jesus as their peace. You become covered in the blood of Jesus. Jesus, you're my peace. Second reason it matters is it allows us, brother, sister, brother Christian, sister Christian, we leave judgment to God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, right? It's not ours. I don't get vengeance. I bless and I do not curse. I pray for my enemies. I do good to my enemies. Why? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He will take care of this. We must not. I've been reading off and on a book on uh, um, ministering to the sexually abused by a man named Dan Allender. It's called The Wounded Heart. It's a long book. So he doesn't mean to rush it. But in the end, he's hoping that those who have been sexually abused can forgive their abusers. It's work. It's not supposed to be trite. But the reason why we can eventually forgive our abusers is because God's vengeance will be done correctly. And he writes this, Our acts of revenge are puny, but his, God's, are perfect. Right? So we leave the vengeance of God to, go, to take care of the pedophiles and the sexual abusers. Now that doesn't mean if that has happened to you, you don't call the police today. It's not what I'm saying. In fact, if it is happening, you should call the police, talk to people. But the idea of our need for vengeance, it's in God's hands. And we can forgive. Why? Because Christ has forgiven us. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Jesus' second coming says we have great promise of peace now. We can leave justice to God. And I want to just give one final implication. And that's to live in light of the coming future. And that, what does that mean? It means to be holy. Let me just look at the, I want you to look at the last two verses in Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14, verse 20 says, on that day, so this is looking ahead, on that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bulls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. And all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. In Zechariah's vision, he sees the future age as an age of everything holy and consecrated to God. It's picturing a life where everything that we do, everything that we think about is, is 
with the Lord at the center. And he's talking about like this holiness of the Lord, it permeates everything. It permeates the things on the horse. It, it talks about the pots, the cookware. This is the Lord's. My, everything is dedicated to him. It's, it's talking about the absence of all wickedness. That word Canaanite saying there'll be no idolatry there. There will be no false worship there. If this is God's intended future for everyone and everywhere, I can tell you it's God's intention for his church today. Everything is holy to the Lord. Everything we do. From the rising to our breakfast to our lunch to how we go about our work to how we interact with someone in the Walmart checkout line, it's holy unto the Lord. We do everything we can for the Lord. So just to close, I've been reading, I've been, my wife and I have been watching this uh, television series uh, called Foil's War. It's a little bit about a detective in World War II. And one of my favorite lines that they all say uh, in Britain during World War II is they all try to do their bit. Right? So whether you're a domestic service, you do your bit. Or whether you go fight in the European conflict, you do your bit. I love the picture. Jesus is going to return. Victory is coming. Until then, we do our bit. Everything holy to the Lord. Leaving vengeance to God. Crying out, Jesus, you're my peace. We believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, we praise you for the good news that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. I pray that you would grant us peace. I pray that you would give us hearts of forgiveness and not uh, hearts of revenge. And I pray, God, that our lives would be marked by holiness unto the Lord. In Christ's name, amen.